0: Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. One of the things that is encouraging and insightful about Spending time in front of the Bible and letting it sort of work its way into us is the way in which, when we do that, we very often come across real people living in a real, often messy world, and the way in which God interacts with them, the way that which God comes to them and speaks to them, and these everyday life situations people are facing, used to face, still face, the stuff that we deal with, we can turn the pages of the Bible and find examples of people who were seeking to live their lives for God and under God, and their lives and the circumstances of their lives unfolded in a particular way, and they found themselves in a certain situation. And the stories that are in the Bible very often are the ways in which God interacted with, met the person, came to the person. Shape the person in and through the circumstances and the events of their lives. And 1 Samuel chapter 18, you may have the instinct to turn to it, you don't need to, it's not our scripture reading, but it is a fascinating chapter of the Bible. I would encourage you to take a look at it and read it through later on, because 1 Samuel 18 outlines a series of events and circumstances that gradually reveal a hidden and dormant aspect of King Saul's character. And it's well worth reading through it. One of the things you find when we read through 1 Samuel 18 is the way in which the Bible pierces beneath the surface, or if you prefer, pulls the curtain back, and we see kind of the reality of humanity on the pages of this single chapter. What goes on in a person's heart The way in which different character qualities get embedded into somebody and then manifested when the circumstances of life bring those things forth. It is an earthy, real, messy story. Let me try to summarize it. Saul was Israel's first king. And the Bible says he was a handsome guy. He was a tall guy. He was an impressive guy. Basically, he was Greg Rosler from a long time ago. And then this... That is pretty funny, isn't it? Anyway, I'm sorry. I really, I, I confess my sin, but it was a good one to commit. Anyway, then this nobody named David began to experience success as a leader, and he began to experience success as a military commander. Younger guy, up and coming, and the crowds adored him, and David's advancement threatened King Saul. And we see this in 1 Samuel 18. Saul's jealousy, his bitterness, and his anger slowly began to eat away at him and slowly consumed him. It was there all the time. Important part of what we're going to try to focus on today. These things were there all the time. They were, as we sometimes say, in King Saul. Dormant in his inner being. But then the circumstances of life drew these things out, and Saul did not have the wisdom or the courage to sit down in the weeds of his own weakness and invite God into those weeds and weaknesses. And so for the rest of his life, quite literally, Saul held David in contempt and relentlessly chased after him in the hopes of killing him. It's a familiar but rather unfruitful tactic we frequently employ. It goes something like this. When our insides are in chaos or in trouble, we look to something outside to blame. And then we try to eliminate this outside factor instead of sitting down and facing the reality of who we are. So the frailty of Saul's character was exposed, but he didn't want to face it. He didn't want to look at it. Instead, what he wanted to do is find something external, namely David, to blame for his internal disruption. And that is why he's such a tragic figure in the Bible. Saul hunted David. And for a long time, David was on the run simply to save his own life. And Saul eventually dies in a battle. And there's a bit of a groundswell of celebration breaking out, throughout the nation of Israel, over Saul's demise. It's sort of a ding-dong, the witch is finally dead kind of a thing. But David gets wind of this, and he puts a stop to it, and he writes this amazing lament about the death of King Saul, and about the death of Saul's son, Jonathan, who was David's really good friend. And David makes the people of Israel actually learn and memorize this lament. And so this is our scripture reading, if you would stand for it. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 2 uh, or chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 17 through 27. And this is right on the heels of David finding out about the death of Saul and his good friend Jonathan. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jasher. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you neither, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul with uh, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel weep for Saul who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Just to say it straight up, today is about character formation. Today we want to think together and process together a bit about who we are and who we are becoming in our character or in our inner being. Not long ago I was on an airplane in Phoenix waiting to take off and return to Sacramento and the flight attendant came over the intercom and said, this is a completely full flight, every seat will be taken. And I was sure she was lying. At least one seat was going to remain open, I believe, and it was the middle seat right next to me on the airplane. But eventually, someone showed up and asked if the seat was taken, and I kid you not, instantly, a flash flood of ugly broke loose inside of me. And for the next couple of hours, I pouted, I was irritated, I had moments where I felt like I was the victim of some great injustice, and I was generally a big baby, as I sat there. So here's a question. What is that? What is happening in that mundane, off-the-beaten-path, ordinary, sort of grinding moment of life? What is that? And maybe more importantly, does it matter in the life I'm trying to live with God and before Him, or is it really no big deal? just kind of part of an imperfect and flawed life, being lived out in an imperfect and flawed world. And so don't even think about it. Why are you wasting your time on it? It's no big deal. Forget about it and move on. I would suggest to you circumstances have a way of revealing our character, a character that is already there. It just needs the right circumstances to pull it forth. Now, what do we mean by character? We're going to talk a fair amount about this today. So when we say character, or we talk about the inner being, what exactly are we saying? Our old friend Dallas Willard writes this. It's on the screen. He says, "...our character is that internal, overall structure of the self that is revealed by our long-run patterns of behavior and from which our actions more or less automatically arise." It is character that explains why we use credit reports and resumes and letters of reference to make decisions about people. They do not just tell what someone did, but they reveal what kind of thoughts feelings, and tendencies of will that person habitually acts from and therefore how he or she will act in the future. But character can be changed and that, of course, is what spiritual formation in likeness is all about. I like the phrase he uses, from which our actions more or less automatically arise. One way to think of character, it's just simply who we are when we can be whatever we want. It's what just naturally and instinctively and automatically comes out of us when things happen. Character awareness is a big part of our growth in Christ's likeness. Meaning, seeing ourselves accurately and honestly. Knowing our particular weaknesses and temptations and sins. With the help of others, learning our blind spots. Being open to the idea that there are second nature thought patterns and feelings and actions and reactions that Jesus wants to transform in us. Let me say that differently. Being open to the idea that there are automatic responses we have to the circumstances and events of our lives that Jesus wants to transform in us in order that we might experience his kingdom in greater measure. If you've been around Oak Hills for a while, you may know character formation, what we're talking about today, is central to who we are and who we want to be as a church. We believe the Spirit of God wants to do transforming work in the details of our inner life and character. And those details, those particulars, those specifics, are revealed in the situations and circumstances of life, and work, and airplanes, and marriage, and family, and friendships, and conflicts, and painful pasts, and all sorts of other things. Who we are, and who we are in the process of becoming, the word we're using today, character, is perhaps the central issue in our life with God and in our life with others. Who we are is what influences other people. Who we are is what other people remember about us. Who we are is what shapes our friends and our children and others close to us. Who we are in our workplace is our real work. Who we are in our vocation is really and ultimately our vocation. And who we are in this life comes with us into eternity. And who we are individually as a Christ follower and who we are as a Christian community called Oak Hills Church is what bears witness to the reality of God and His kingdom in this broken and divided world. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul stood up in a synagogue and he delivered a sermon about God's action in the history of Israel. And in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, Paul says, God testified concerning King David. And this is what God said about David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. It's a really good phrase for us to camp on for a second. A man or a woman after God's own heart is a wonderful description of what it means to be a person who is growing in Christ-like character. To be after something means to be in pursuit of it. After God's heart is one who is pursuing God's heart. They're seeking to align with God in their inner being and character. They are seeking to increasingly be like Jesus. They increasingly want the inner being and character of Jesus to be their inner being and their character. They are oriented toward learning how to care about the things God cares about and respond to life situations the way Jesus Response. So let's talk about an important daily decision we have to make. A person of character, or if you prefer, a person after God's heart, is never very far from some version of this question. What does it look like for me, given my personality and given my history, to grow in Christ-like character? A person of character, oriented toward God's heart, is never far from this question. But it is a terrific mistake for us to think or assume that everyone who identifies as Christian really considers this question. Meaning, there are plenty of people who identify as Christian who rarely consider such a question. So there are people who identify as Christian, we just have to say this, who really aren't after God's heart in the details of their lives, For if everyone who identified as Christian was after God's heart in the details of their lives, it would seem to me this world would be a far better place. So when it comes to our character, you and I have a decision to make. And it's kind of a daily decision. In fact, I would venture to say, in some respects, it's a moment-to-moment decision. It certainly is not a one-time decision. I want to be someone after God's heart. Okay, great. Check that off. What's next on the to-do list? It doesn't work like that. This is what Jesus was getting at when he invited his disciples to die to self daily. Take up their cross and follow him. This is John the Baptist's phrase. We could apply this on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. He must increase and I must decrease. Whatever situation I'm in, whatever context, whatever's going on, simple phrase, he must increase, I must decrease. That's someone after God's heart. Or Paul's phrase in Galatians 2.20, whatever situation we're in, whatever uh, circumstance we find ourselves in, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This decision daily maybe moment by moment, to be after God's heart right here, right now, in this situation or that one. Now let me clarify something. A person after God's heart is not perfect, obviously. A person after God's heart faces real temptations. David certainly did. A person after God's heart has real sins to overcome. Real pain to navigate. David certainly did. So I would say it this way, a person after God's heart is a real person. They live a real life in a really messy world. But they want to be a woman or they want to be a man after God's own heart. The situation on the airplane with the person in the middle seat is the crossroads where those daily decisions get made. You might be thinking, that's a rather unspectacular example. Aren't there some other bigger ticket items where we see this need for such a decision. Indeed, there are. And yet, I chose this airplane example on purpose because it's so unspectacular. Because it's so easy to say, well, that doesn't actually matter. I would suggest it does matter. And the decision in the moment is, let the flash flood of ugly keep flowing and just blow it off. Well, I'm only human after all. Or, sit down in the mess of it. And invite Jesus into the discomfort of that situation, either right there in the moment or sometime later. And more importantly, not so much to bring Jesus into, why did I act like that and how can I not act that way in the future, but bring him into the root causes behind the flash flood of ugly. I often find with this topic of character formation, that it is good for us to pare it down to something much smaller than it initially presents itself as. For when we talk about character formation or growth in Christ-likeness, many of us have the following sort of reaction. Oh my goodness, there's so much I need to grow in. I mean, it's a vast area of growth I need. And what ends up happening is, as we comfort ourselves by saying, well, I need to grow in everything, and that usually results in us growing in nothing. Because it's just too big to all take on. And I would suggest, as we think about this today, to pair this idea of character formation down to just one thing. One area, however small it may be. One attribute the Spirit of God might want to cultivate in us. Maybe put it this way. Given our present circumstances, how does Jesus want my character to grow? I like thinking of this in this way. Where is Jesus poking around in my inner being? What's He up to? What's He stirring up? And be specific. One of the ways we can sort of get at this one thing or this pared down process is to think of the fruit of the Spirit as different kinds of attributes that we may zero in on in terms of this character formation. So let me just list them. Could it be that Jesus is poking around in our inner being with respect to loving others or experiencing joy or being at peace in our inner being? or learning to be patient with others, or learning kindness, or goodness, or faithfulness, or self-control. I would encourage you to pare it down today, right now, in this moment, to think in terms of, where is Jesus poking around in my inner being? What's He been up to? What themes keep appearing? What character quality of His Would he like to reproduce in me? Let's talk for a moment about knowing our character. Eugene Peterson writes these important words in the devotional we're using for this series, Every Step in Arrival, and in the actual devotional for this morning's message. And what he wrote is on the screen. The actual character of men and women emerges in confrontation with the ultimate issues. Forces that have been dormant or hidden beneath the routine surfaces of life Suddenly are exposed and not infrequently the exposure is of ugliness and malice. That just goes right through me. And I think it's good for us to sit down in this for just a moment and not hurry our way through it. Peterson says who we are shows up when the circumstances of life align in a particular way. It is those circumstances that bring forth a character that is already in us. To say it differently, who we are emerges. To tie back to the beginning, when I'm on the airplane, and I'm salivating at the prospect of the middle seat being open for this flight from Phoenix, and somebody shows up and says, is someone sitting here? This instinct I have to say, yeah, my invisible friend is sitting there or a variety of other things that aren't nearly as kind, all of that is in me. And it's not just the behavior. There's something deeper in there, which is why this potentially dismissible event ought not be dismissed. The 49ers play the Packers tonight. If the 49ers win and you have my phone number, please don't text me. (laughs) Don't bother me. Sunday night is my prayer night. That's, I'm kidding. Please laugh harder. If the Packers win and I have your number, however, I'll text you and I'll bother you. That's how it works. I get to do that, you don't. So, a couple of weeks ago in an NFL football game on national TV, a defensive lineman for the Cleveland Browns named Miles Garrett ripped off the helmet of the quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers, whose name is Mason Rudolph, and Garrett held Rudolph's helmet in his hand, and he took a swing at Rudolph's bare head with his helmet, and he actually struck him with his helmet. So using Peterson's words up on that screen, that would be a vivid example of, quote, the actual character of a man emerging in confrontation with Ultimate issues. He took the guy's helmet off and swung in his head, not because just out of the blue, out of nowhere, out of nothing, he just decided, I think I'll do this. All of the raw material was in him. The circumstances aligned. And he did exactly what he had trained himself to do and be in those moments. So think about a recent way your character has emerged What dormant or hidden forces within you have suddenly been exposed in some life circumstance or situation? What ugly, malicious, unforgiving, judgmental, critiquing, overly anxious, prideful, arrogant, passive-aggressive, inner reality has been revealed through recent life experiments? See, so with these kinds of self-examinations, it's usually most helpful to think in the context of either when we've been alone and the actual character of who we are has emerged or in the context of a close relationship. Because we tend to have our guard down and we are more of who we actually are when we're alone and no one's looking or when we're with those closest to us and we don't care if they're looking. So what character quality has recently emerged as life has happened? Let me mention a few broad categories of life circumstances that have a unique way of pulling forth a character that is already in us. I'm going to mention three of them. And the first is when we don't get what we want. This is what was happening on the airplane. Oh, I want this empty seat. I can't wait. I can't wait. And suddenly, I'm not getting what I want. And when we don't get what we want, it has a very unique way of pulling forth a character that's already in us. In fact, one of the most profound ways character is revealed is how we respond when we don't get what we want. Now, here's the wonderful news where you can test this out. Thanksgiving is Thursday. We will be with our families And that means there will probably be multiple moments when we don't get what we want. So we might see who we are in just a couple days in high definition. When life doesn't go how we want it to go, our character gets pushed to the surface. Here's another broad category that exposes what's in us. When we get hurt, someone insults us, someone abandons us, someone ignores us. Someone irritates us. Or this hurt is from the past. Our past keeps appearing in the present. Things that happened to us long ago keep influencing our self perception and continue to influence how we relate. To other people. So for example, we were rejected way back in the past and that might mean we're prone to feeling rejected in the present even if we are not actually being rejected in the present. The pain of the past then continues to shape us and influence the present. If we want to understand who we are and the character that lies beneath our surface, we need to sit down in the weeds of our pain and take note of our reactions toward those who hurt us or toward those who remind us of someone who has hurt us. Another example, if we didn't feel like our voice mattered in the past, we were ignored, we were Dismissed. We didn't have a seat at a table. It is possible we are prone in the present to thinking and even feeling like our voice doesn't matter now. And we may actually react whenever someone ignores or dismisses us, or when we think or feel like they've ignored or dismissed us. We end up reacting because all of this pain from the past is influencing the present, And there are like a thousand of these tethers from who we are right now today back to who we were yesterday. It's worth thinking about. See, this is the front lines of Jesus' transformational work. Right in that space where we see that tether from past to present. Here's a third broad category. When we... Um, That brings out our character. When our enemy gets hurt or loses somehow. We all have enemies. We probably don't call them enemies, but we all have them. We all have others. Those we don't like. Those we don't respect. Those we don't understand. Those we don't agree with. Those we wish were different. And sometimes their pain is our gain. And we should pay attention when this happens. And we should sit down in the weeds of our delight over our enemy's defeat. This is a massive issue today in the political theater we are living in. It's a massive issue where Christ followers on all sides of the political spectrum experience a kind of perverse joy when their side wins a battle and the enemy loses a battle, and I would suggest to you, this is one of those perhaps seemingly ordinary, forgettable things that is a window into our character. The scripture reading we read a moment ago from Second Samuel is an absolutely remarkable example of the Holy Spirit's work in the inner life of David. Remember, Saul was out to kill David. So David's been running around hiding in the wilderness for a very long time. He was in and out of caves, surviving on grub worms and dandelions, spending these long and lonely nights alone out in the wilderness in a cave, crying out to God, legitimately saying, Why, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me to this? What have I done? Lamenting. Over what has happened. Wondering why this has all happened. For he did nothing to deserve it. And here's my question. What would you do if you were David. And one day you heard about Saul's death. Your enemy. Celebrate his death. See transformation in a real human being. Living in a really messy world. Looks like this. God formed David's heart in compassion. And grace toward his enemy, Saul. And he did this as he was darting around the wilderness from cave to cave in lonely nights. God cultivated compassion and grace in David toward the man who wanted to kill him. And so David laments. Let me read a portion of it again. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold, how the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. David leads the nation toward compassion instead of bitterness. Don't miss this. David grieves the death of the man who kept trying to kill him. Sit there for a second. I mean, that is a real life deal. This is a real dude who is responding to his enemy with indescribable compassion and grace. The very guy who wanted to kill David David grieves his death and he leads the nation of Israel toward the same compassion instead of bitterness. And he did this not because he was trying hard and white knuckling and gritting his teeth to suppress his glee over Saul's demise. He wasn't thinking something like you know I'm a leader and I'm not supposed to revel in my enemy's defeat so I'm going to act like I care. David did this because he was a man after God's own heart. And so compassion and grace emerged when his enemy died. It's almost unfathomable. And I hope we can see the brilliantly wonderful alternative Jesus cultivates in those who want him to cultivate it. This is the inner world of one who has been changed by God's presence and by God's power. No bitterness. No desire to retaliate. No clinging to the unforgiveness because the unforgiveness lets me be a victim and being a victim gets me what I want. None of that. Genuine compassion for the one who was determined to kill him. This is what transformation looks like in one of life's details. Sometimes people say, you know, you guys talk about this all the time, transformation in Christ-likeness. Can you make it simpler? I don't get it. This is what it looks like. Bitterness becomes compassion. The desire for revenge becomes the desire for blessing. Loving our enemies would be the phrase Jesus uses. Let's talk for a moment about the patience of God. By the time the Apostle Paul delivered his message in Acts chapter 13, where he referred to David as a man after God's own heart, all of Israel knew of David's well-documented weaknesses and sins. And everybody in the audience Paul was speaking to that day knew of David's colossal failures, which included adultery and murder and large-scale manipulation and deception. But even in his failings, I would suggest to you, David was a man after God's own heart. And I know this grinds against our instincts, which is why I'm fairly sure there's truth to it. Even in his failings, David was a man after God's own heart because eventually, however gradually, he wanted his weaknesses and his sins and his failings transformed by his God. So underneath his sinful behavior was still a heart that hungered for God and longed to be more like him. So his trajectory was toward God's heart. Yes, his sin was an attempt to shortcut the path to fulfillment and abundance, but his sin was not the definition of who he was. Sometimes, let's face it, people plunge into sin without regard for God or the consequences. They don't care about anything but their own pleasure. But not here, not with David. He was a man after God's own heart, even in his wayward moments. And this says something about God. And I would suggest, again, we need to sit down in this For just a moment. I'm struck by God's patience. I only need to think of my own journey. To be in awe. Of God's patience. I'm struck by his patience. The transformation of our inner being. Is not a timed blue book test. God is patient with us. Real inner life change. If it's going to be real inner life change. Takes time. And God is gracious, and He's patient with us in the process. So go back to the one thing that came to mind earlier, the one character quality, the one attribute Jesus might want to cultivate in you. Let's pick one. One I've been on for a while is gentleness. I think gentleness is likely needed by many these days, given our world, and I know gentleness is needed by me for the rest of my days. Growth in gentleness. Inching toward having the gentleness of Jesus in the various situations of life. Here's what I know. God is patient with us through the many stumbles and falls along the way to developing his heart of gentleness. And lastly, let's talk about growth in character. Growth in character is a matter of action, not words. See, like anything, character transformation requires effort. Just like anything else, where transformation is the objective, it requires effort. So put up my buddy, if you would. Take a look at this dog. This is my dog, Gus. And uh, this is in the early morning one day. You can see that silver chain around his neck. That's essentially his training collar. And in, we've had about 15 dogs, animals, since Julie and I were married. We've not had a single one that's been trained. So we decided with Gus that we were going to train him and see if we couldn't make life a bit easier for us. So we got him a year ago in November. And since this past summer, uh, Gus has been training. And Mike, his owner, has been training in how to train Gus. I've had some people that have helped me because I know nothing about this. But ever since the summer, Gus and I have been training, and here's the key thing, a little bit, almost every day. That shot was taken early in the morning. I was sitting over in the chair and he's looking at me and this is what he's saying to me, hey, you've been sleeping all night. It's time to get up and let's do our training. Let's go. Let's work at it. See, it takes effort to grow in character, to become loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-control. There is no Jesus running around with a magic wand going, oh, Mike says he wants to be gentle. Gentle Ramas. And all of a sudden, wow, look at how gentle he is. doesn't work like that. We've got to sort of lock in on one of these and sort of orient toward becoming it and put forth effort in training so that it becomes part of who we are to be after God's heart of gentleness or you fill in the blank with your word. So what will I do tomorrow to cooperate with Jesus, to train, to become gentler. So the next time I'm on the plane and the middle seat's open and I so desperately want it to remain open, but then someone comes and takes it, gentleness arises automatically when the middle seat is taken. I cannot even imagine that. (laughs) This isn't rocket science. The Spirit works when we invite Him to work. He moves when we move. I don't feel like exercising. You know, I'm not motivated to exercise. I don't want to exercise. You know, I don't want to go to work tomorrow. I don't feel like going to work. I don't feel like studying. You know, I've never liked sociology, so I don't want to study sociology. I don't feel like brushing my teeth, so I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't want to take a shower more than once a week. I don't feel like wearing deodorant. I don't feel like washing my clothes. You see the point. So let's talk about a couple character-forming exercises. I'm going to say nothing about two of them and something about one of them. Character-forming exercises. Go back to the one thing you chose earlier. Gentleness, peace, joy, kindness, whatever it is. This has to be a matter of prayer. We have to put forth the effort in training ourselves to grow in these things. And prayer is one of the exercises. It doesn't have to be a big thing. God, help me grow in gentleness so I experience the goodness of life in your kingdom. God, today, make me aware of those situations that tend to pull forth the opposite of gentleness. And by your Spirit, help me be gentle in those moments so I experience the goodness of your kingdom. Prayer is one exercise. Another exercise or training tool is making time to be with God. I don't mean to rub anybody the wrong way, but it's fascinating to hear people who will often say, I want to be more loving, joyful, gentle, whatever it is, but they rarely, if ever, spend time with the one whose love or joy or gentleness they want reproduced in them. It doesn't work like that making time to be with God, putting ourselves in front of these scriptures and letting them have their way with us, letting them speak to us, letting them lift up the surface and get underneath us, hearing it, reading it, thinking about it, soaking in it, and letting it work itself into us. And then the last one, the last exercise, maybe the hardest Maybe the one that we can do almost immediately. I just call it counterintuitive action. The ancients used to put it this way. We act our way into a new way of thinking and feeling. I don't feel like brushing my teeth. I don't think brushing my teeth matters. Okay. Well, act your way into a new way of thinking and feeling. Meaning, do it. See, we've trained ourselves to think and act and react to certain things in certain ways and is profoundly transformative to purposefully go against our ingrained instincts because some of our ingrained instincts are not the way God would have us be. What do I mean? If you tend to hide, counterintuitive, show up. If you tend to leave and run away, counterintuitive, stay. If you tend to avoid conflict, counterintuitive, move toward it. If you tend to play it safe all the time, counterintuitive, take a risk. If you tend to go around and the first things out of your mouth are critiques and complaints of other people, counterintuitive, celebrate another person. If you tend to, first word, complain, counterintuitive. First word, affirm. If you tend to be the loud one who dominates the conversation, be the quiet one who's being sought after. If you like to sit at the center of the restaurant table so the whole energy of the table revolves around you, go sit at the end of the table and talk to one person. If you tend to sit at the end of the table because you're hiding and avoiding, go sit at the center of the table. If you tend to like the aisle seat on the airplane, no, I can't even say it. I mean, not even Jesus would want us to take the middle seat if something else was available. Let's pray together. I want to ask you to just zero in for a second. We got a few minutes left. And I want to ask you to zero back in on that attribute, that character quality, that little sliver off the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, whatever came to mind when we pared it down. could be really simple. I hope it is. Really straightforward. A character quality Jesus has that you'd like to have more of. I'd encourage you to just sit right there. If your eyes are closed, feel like leaving them closed. You're not going to sing here. There's nothing to do. Where's Jesus poking around in your inner being? What character quality would he like to cultivate? Hmm.